Father, we thank you for the truth that we just sang over and over and over again because it is that truth that all of our hope is hinged upon. Nothing but the blood of Jesus gives us any guarantee at all, any hope at all, of you even hearing us right now, let alone saving us and creating a new heaven and new earth for us. So we give you all the praise, God, and we ask that as we begin to dive into your word now, that you would give my feeble lips the words for the people you've gathered here. In the name of Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> well, as, uh, as hard as it is for me to believe, going all the way back to September of 2019, we are finally here. We have officially reached the end of the book of Revelation, a book I can honestly tell you I never thought that I would preach through, and yet... We've done it. When I was uh, in seminary, pastor school, uh, you know, I was instructed constantly by, by my professors to ask of every text of scripture I came to, every single one, what's the big idea? Part of my task as a pastor, as I study for the week and I study to preach, was to ask and answer that question before I got up in the pulpit so that I could then tell you clearly. What's the big idea? Admittedly, that has not always been easy to see going through a book like Revelation. With all of its symbolism and all of its strange word pictures and, and all of its meaning. I mean, there's, there's so much going on that it could be tough to sort of see what the big ideas were. But, but tonight, as we come to the very last passage in the book, what it really is doing for us is laying out the big ideas of the book. Like, what is it? The main reasons for why this revelation was given in the first place. What are those reasons? Why did God choose to give this revelation to John? If we go back to the beginning... Back in chapters, especially 1, 2, and 3, we remember the first thing that happens in the book is Jesus addresses uh, a number of different churches all throughout the ancient world. And as he addresses them, he exhorts the churches in a number of areas. He corrects and rebukes the churches in areas where they're lacking. But what we're going to see here this evening as we go through the end of chapter 22 is we're going to see a lot of those same themes emphasized again. This is the big idea. This is what I want you to get your mind around. So, with that by way of an introduction, Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. We'll read the whole passage through and then we'll talk about it. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, 
you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. End of reading. So, what are the big ideas in the book of Revelation? What are the big ideas Jesus wants his church to grab onto as we go through this last bit of the book? Well, the first big idea that I pick up on is that God's word is sufficient for us. You'll notice at the very beginning of our passage, it says these words are trustworthy and true. And almost at the end of the passage, we hear if anyone adds or takes away from this word, they will not be given a share in his kingdom to come. Now, there, there's kind of two ways of understanding these words. On the one hand, in the immediate context here, uh, the words here are referring specifically to the book of Revelation. But on the other hand, because these are nearly the last words of the entire Bible, and because we believe that ultimately the Spirit is the one who determined which books would end up where in the Bible, we can also legitimately apply John's exhortations and warnings here to the entire Bible. Indeed, if we go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, we hear Jesus commend churches for, quote, holding fast to his word, holding true to his testimonies, and at the same time rebuking churches that are not. All this to say, and why this applies still to us today, there is a lot of different words vying for your attention and affection on a daily basis in our world. And many of these words, these messages, 
end up competing with the words and the message laid out for us in Scripture. We're presented with words that tell us the opposite of what Scripture says about race or you know, politics or greed or, or sex or, or whatever it is. I mean, the, the messages are coming at you constantly through social media and through television and through all the different mediums that we come across on a daily basis. And make no mistake, they are preaching. We're, be we're being preached to. And we're hearing them and we're receiving them. And Jesus wants to shore up his church at the end that had the same kinds of words being preached to them, just in different ways and different forms. But to some extent, it's no different. There's, the, the words are always coming. Jesus knows that these are false prophecies. They're false words vying for your faith and devotion. And he knows that what they ultimately will lead to is destruction and confusion and division in his church. And so the book closes. Remember my word. Remember it's sufficient for you. Yes, you'll be tempted to believe and listen and, and take in these other words that are coming at you. But remember my word's primacy. Another big idea in Revelation is that we ought to watch out for idolatry. Idolatry. In the beginning of the letters to the churches, Jesus wants, in, warns in particular the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira that they need to avoid the tendency to this idol worship. Now, what is idol worship? What is idolatry? Well, in its simplest form, it is placing your trust and hope in something or someone more than or other than the true God. Tim Keller says it this way, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning of life and identity, that is an idol. It's anything that we find ourselves submitting to instead of God and his word. And it happens all the time. Any act of disobedience committed is really, at its most base level, a form of idolatry. Because although you know what the Word of God says, in that moment, you choose to follow a different path. Why? Because in that moment, for whatever reason, you've convinced yourself that God's Word is not right for you then, or you've downplayed it, you've minimized it, and you've gone after this other path. In this passage, we see even John. I mean, the great apostle John, even prone to idolatry of the sort. Well, if you noticed, I mean, there's an angel speaking to him. And this happens multiple times throughout the book. John is so overwhelmed and awed by what he's seeing. I mean, understandably, it's a supernatural creature that probably looks completely different than anything John has ever seen before in his life. But he's so in awe of what he sees that multiple times he's tempted to fall down in worship 
to the angelic being. He does so here. And what does the angel say to him? Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. I'm a servant just like you. Yeah, you know, I might have some nicer clothes. Maybe I got some wings. Maybe I glow. You know, we don't really know. But the only one you worship, John, the only one you worship, church, is God. Now we know at the time that there was a movement of angel worship um, happening in some of the churches already. Uh, you can go to the book of Colossians and there's hints there that it was maybe creeping into that church. And it would make sense because one of the churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation is close to where Colossae was, to where the Colossian church was. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason that this is included for us is to warn the churches at that time, don't fall into this trap, don't do it. But my guess is, I mean, I'm just taking a stab in the dark here. My guess is most of you are not so prone to the temptation of angel worship. But that doesn't mean you're not prone to idolatry in different forms. We may not bow the knee to a statue. But we certainly can bow the knee to fame. We may not bow the knee to the fertility goddess Diana. But we can certainly bow the knee to all sorts of sexual immorality. We may not bow the knee to Baal, but we may bow the knee to wealth or career. I mean, the list can go on and on. There's never, you, you can make anything an idol. You can make great things an idol, by the way. You can make your family an idol. You can make your spouse an idol. You can make your children an idol. You can make your friends an idol. Anything has the potential to take that place of God's in our lives. So one of the big ideas wrapping up Revelation, worship God alone. And since we're so prone to idolatry, as John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory, always sort of producing things that will worship instead of God, that means that we constantly have to be brought back to this. This is one of the reasons that when we gather, we do confess our sin. Because at bottom, remember, the Word, the word of God says that, to, that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. Well, we just don't do that. We just don't. And if we don't do that, then that means to some degree or another, we haven't worshipped Him as we should. And so each and every day, we're brought back to this reality. Worship God alone. Worship God alone. And when we stray, we go back. And when we stray, we go back. Thirdly, another big idea in the text is that we ought to be ready for Christ's return any time. Very soon. Over and over throughout the book, we're told that what is revealed must soon take place. That's a direct quote. Now, if one takes the position that I do in regard to this book, in regard to Revelation, which is that a whole lot of this book actually was fulfilled in the first century with the Roman Empire and Jerusalem, well then... Indeed, the churches Jesus is speaking to in this book have every reason to be on the lookout. 
But when we come to the end of the book and the new heaven and the new earth have been established, clearly a still-in-the-future event because, well, we're all still here, Jesus again reiterates throughout the passage to the church that his second coming, that the end of the world could happen any time. Right at the beginning, we read, the angel says, show the servants what must soon take place. Jesus says in verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. Skip on down to verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Again, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Now last week, we pointed out, for those that have faith in Christ, the only judgment that they will receive when he does come for what they have done is in fact a favorable judgment for what God has done for them in the person of Christ and what God has done and will do through them by his Spirit. In other words... There's rewards to look forward to for those who have faith in Christ. But the point of all this coming soon talk is, is clear to the church back then and it's clear to us. We're supposed to live as if it could happen anytime. That's what the church has held to from the very beginning and it's why nearly every generation of the church throughout history has had those who were nearly convinced that it could happen in their day. And this knowledge that his coming could happen any time is meant to help us keep going. Even when times get tough, like they no doubt did for the recipients of this letter. This is why Jesus says in a sort of cryptic statement in verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. What, what exactly does that mean? I don't think the point of it is that Jesus wants evildoers to do more evil. I don't think the point of it is that he wants the filthy to be even more filthy. God is not the uh, creator of evil, nor is he the cause of it. So I don't think we can say that. No, I think the point is that he wants the knowledge of his coming to spur his church on to continue doing right and to continue pursuing holiness. In other words, it's essentially him saying, if I can paraphrase it, sure, the world may continue to commit evil and to commit wrong things. Sure, that's going to continue. But you don't do that, church. You don't pursue those things. You continue to pursue righteousness and holiness as you anticipate my coming. And what is it that will preserve the church going forward? Well, the constant recognition in their minds and among each other of who Christ actually is for them. That is, we ought to hold fast to Christ's identity. Listen to this passage again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, verse 13. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Skip on down to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. As Jesus spurs on his church to keep 
watch steadfastly for his coming, he immediately anchors them in the reality of who it is they actually will worship. As they're waiting for his coming, he reminds them of who he is. When he says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, he is reminding them out of a passage from the book of Isaiah where God is speaking about himself, that he indeed is God with them. That he indeed is never going to leave them nor forsake them. When Jesus says, blessed are those who wash their robes, he is reminding them that through faith in him, his people have been washed clean of their sin and are declared to be righteous, entirely worthy of eternal life on account of him alone. He is reminding them and anchoring them in the fact that no matter what kinds of terrible things they may have done, that he has forgiven them. Absolutely essential if we're going to continue to live this life down here. We must be bathed over and over and over again in this reality that we are forgiven people in the sight of God. When he says he is the root and the descendant of David, he is telling us he is the king of kings and lord of lords, sovereign over the affairs of the universe. And when he says he is the bright morning star, he is reminding them and us that he is well, he is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given all the way back in Numbers, that he is literally the Messiah promised from the beginning. Throughout her history, the church has fought tirelessly, especially in the first few hundred years, to preserve this identity of Jesus. Because it is only this identity of Jesus as God of God, as forgiver of sins, as king of kings, and ultimately fulfillment of all the scriptures, that any one of us has any hope of making it to the final kingdom. In fact, if we lose this, we lose everything. It is because Jesus is who he said he is, that finally, in the end, we can proclaim to the world that there's still time for them to join us. And so what is Jesus in the book with but an invitation? The Spirit and the Bride. The Bride being His church, it's us. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you're thirsty, come. If you're tired of drinking from the well of the world and never feeling satisfied, come. That's our message that we get to proclaim to the world. Do you know you're a mess and need help? That you can't fix it? Come. Are you tired of just even the brokenness of everything around you? 
If you know you need to be forgiven, come. It's already been won for you and for all of them. And so with that in mind, we say with John in Revelation 22, 20, and 21, Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. With all. Don't you love how the book ends? Not just the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. What's the ultimate goal? What's the ultimate desire of God? We heard it in 2 Peter earlier. That all would come to repentance. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. That's our prayer. That's our hope. And that is what we conclude by saying amen to. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you. Your desire is for the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with all. For all here tonight, may your grace cover them and bathe them. For all outside of this church, walking around this city that has been so hollowed out by virus and by all sorts of strife, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. For all around the world that have never known you, reveal your grace to all. That all would come to repentance. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray with one voice, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.